Are we in Nehemiah? Yeah, there we are, Nehemiah. Okay. That was just the photo shoot I was doing the other week. Uh, (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 2. Okay. Um, A bloke walked into his friend's office, um, found his friend sitting at his desk looking really depressed. What's up with you, he asked. Oh, it's my wife, replied the man sadly. She's hired a new secretary for me. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, he said. Is she blonde or brunette? Neither, said the man. He's bald. (laughs) A depressed person. And Nehemiah is not depressed, but he is sad. And he is sad for good reason. Um, let's quickly look at the story so far. Not everybody was, was here for Nehemiah chapter 1. If you know nothing about it, well, you're going to have to do some back reading or listen to the CD. But I, I'll just give you a quick overview. We're in the time of the exile, a time when the Jewish people had been taken, most of them, out of Jerusalem and, and the uh, land of Israel and Judah and have been taken into Babylon and, and that area, that whole area, in exile, Jerusalem had been largely destroyed, the walls had been broken down, and the temple had been destroyed. We're at the point, at the end of the exile, or towards the end of the exile, when people are starting to go back, and the people keeping them in captive are, are beginning to allow them to go back to Jerusalem. And amongst the first was a priest called Ezra, um, and Ezra rebuilt the temple, so that sacrifices could continue, so that the worship of God could continue. For the Jewish people, the the temple was absolutely vital. It was like, you know, if we haven't got a temple, somehow we haven't got God. The heartlands of our land are missing, just not there. But of course, like every good priest, he was only concerned with his building, (laughs) forgetting that the whole thing was still set in enemy territory, and that it wasn't defended in any way, and the wall of the city was broken down. And so the problem came about like this, that Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to the king in exile, so a young man who had obviously made his way uh, and had been spotted uh, as, as, a, as a good thing, the king had seen that, and he was given this position of responsibility, as I said last time, the cupbearer's job was really, you know, a pretty cushy, unless, of course, somebody wanted to kill the king, in which case it got quite dangerous for the cupbearer. But anyway, so far so good for Nehemiah. Then a crowd of people had come back from Jerusalem and had told him this. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And so Nehemiah is moved to tears at this. And we had a Quite a long time thinking about what moves us to tears, about the plight of other people, uh, as we looked at Nehemiah 1. He was moved to tears, uh, and he determined in his heart that he would, with the help of God, do something about it. But the first thing he does is to fast and to pray, and to show repentance for his people. And he spends quite a long time doing this. And finally, at the end of the prayer... He says, and so God, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of the king. In other words, at the end of this long prayer, and we looked at it last night, fantastic prayer. Uh, You know, if you really want to get into intercession and you look at the stages of that prayer, 
because the intercession only actually comes at the end. It's not like our shopping list type prayers, (laughs) where we hardly acknowledge God's presence. We just tell him all of the things we want. This one is getting Nehemiah's heart aligned with the heart of God. And then he makes his prayer. His prayer basically is, Lord, let me be the answer to my own prayer. I'll do it. I'll do it. And so, here we go. What does he do as we get into Nehemiah chapter (laughs) 2? Can you all see the picture all right? Could we just have the stage lights out on that that side, Caroline, is it? That's uh, that's right. It means you don't... Yeah, that's right. It means I'm in the darkness as well, but you probably prefer that. (laughs) Okay, so he waits for the moment. This is really quite critical, I believe. At the beginning of... Nehemiah 2, you'll see it says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, whereas the news came to him in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year. So you, of course, know how many months, don't you, between Kislev and Nisan. That's a car, is it? Is it Nisan? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Or Nisan. You all know that. You know your Hebrew calendar. No, well, I had to look it up. (laughs) Four months Four months. Now then, when we looked at Nehemiah last time, he was desperate to do something about all of this. He was desperate to get moving. He was desperate to get back to Jerusalem and to do what he knew God wanted him to do. So why has he been sticking around for four months? Is he nervous? Well, as you read on through Nehemiah, he doesn't come across as the nervy type. You know, he was passionate about this. He had fasted, he had prayed, he had wept for his people who at any moment might be destroyed by the surrounding hostile um, armies. And yet he waits. He waits. Good lesson, this. A good lesson. Don't force the hand of God. Be patient and wait for God's moment. It's a critical lesson for us as Christians' disciples. In the smallest of things, we need to wait for the moment of God. Someone who, oh, I say the smallest, this is perhaps one of the biggest of things, someone you're wanting to share the gospel with. You need to get the right moment. You need to get God's moment. Otherwise, you can end up pushing somebody away. I've told you many times it took me 20 years to come to anything like the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But one of the reasons for that, I I think it actually, that was God's timing. But there were so many people who had tried to force the issue with me before, and I just didn't like the people much, because they seemed to be arrogant and pushy. And they weren't, I believe, listening to God in that situation. And I think we can do the same. We can easily do the same. We try to make things happen. I was always told in ministry that the best thing is to to, to find out what God is doing and what God wants and to put your resources in there. And so often we see ourselves as church like batting our head against a brick wall trying to make things happen that God is not telling us to make happen. Do you like Christian conferences? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> Actually, I do. Um, but, but there are some times when you go to a Christian 
particularly as a church leader. You go to leadership conferences, and we've been to a couple of fantastic uh, New Wine Leaders conferences. But there is this sort of danger that as you hear about all of the great things that this church is doing and that church is doing and, and the other, and then leaders as they get together, um, you know, talking about, well, they always talk about the same thing, how many people they're getting in church. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and what they're doing, you know, the youth work and this work that they're doing and that work that they're doing. And you sort of feel a bit inadequate. Because actually, I've never yet found the church that is doing everything. Now, as we look across Lowestoft, churches are doing great work, but some are doing a greater work in some areas than others. And might it just be that that's God's plan? Instead of us competing and thinking in our little bit, we've got to try and do everything. Far, far better, surely, to do the things that God is calling us to do with the gifts and the resources that he has for us. Wait for the moment. For instance, community lunches here at this church, that was of God's anointing. There came a particular time when a couple of people were thinking about this, and, and, and uh, I think it, it sort of centered Marilyn and Anne mainly, wasn't it? And, and the, the, the thought came. And then when we shared what we were doing at a group of church leaders, Mike, uh, Mike Betts from LCC, said, ah, just as you said community lunches, I felt the stirring of the Spirit within me. That's a really anointed thing. And so God has blessed it. In fact, we had too many, you know, we've had more people than we can manage. And through that, people are coming under the sound of the gospel, beginning to come to other things, and, and, and it's an anointed work. We're doing something that God has told us to do. Now, I know not every bit of work is going to be easy in church life. And building the wall of Jerusalem wasn't easy. It was hard work, and they encountered all manner of problems. But how much harder if God hadn't told Nehemiah to do it? Nehemiah knew that he had to wait for the right moment, God's moment. Incidentally... When God takes the anointing off of a project, then stop it. (laughs) Because that's the other thing we do in church life. Something was started in 1915, (laughs) and we sort of feel defeated if it has to stop. I have to say a bargain with God, that's probably wrong, but the... I've always said to God, the moment the anointing is, any anointing for leadership or preaching or whatever is taken away from me, then I will stop. Because it is absolutely useless trying to do things without God's touch on your life. Wait for God's moment, whether it be a small thing or whether it be a massive thing. Again, you know, what is there in your life? moment that's burdening you, and it might be a personal issue. It might be a relationship that needs sorting out. It could be any manner of things. It could be an area of ministry that you're wondering about, and you're thinking, God might be bringing to birth in me. Pray and pray and pray, and wait for God's moment. Okay, so then his strategy, as he is waiting, what does he do? Well, I'll tell you, it's a really clever strategy. 
he looks sad. <laughs> he looks sad. This Nehemiah, um, I, I, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? <laughs> he was obviously a very compassionate sort of man. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? I think some people are better at concealing how they feel than others. Karen tells me I'm totally useless at concealing how I feel. <laughs> I mean, many of you know that, you know, I lost my dad a, a, a month or so ago. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you, you, you do your best. But, you know, your emotions, it's a funny thing, funny old thing, bereavement, I have discovered. And sometimes you just can't conceal <laughs> how you're feeling. Um, and that's perhaps no bad thing. But the thing is with Nehemiah is his sadness of heart. That's a very poignant little phrase, isn't it? This sadness of heart that he had was not for himself. You know, because I think, well, yeah, I often feel sad and down about things, and it's normally because my nose has been put out of joint in some way or some, some little plan that I had hasn't quite gone right or I'm irritated about something. And they're all me things. They're things that are centered on me. Nehemiah is sad because his friends, his, his, his compatriots are suffering. His sadness of heart has really come from God. And I don't know if you've ever had that. It, it, it happens to me very, very occasionally. But, but people who sometimes are more into the prophetic uh, in terms of their gifting will suddenly feel a little brush of the heart of God for the lost of the world. Or they'll suddenly feel a brush of the heart of God for the suffering of the world. Or they'll suddenly feel a brush of the heart of God regarding injustice. And when that happens, even the lightest brush of the heart of God that breaks over his creation is almost too much for a human heart to bear. You know, I've known people, um, they suddenly be weeping. Uh, it's a worship song, and, and I say, all right. Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> Nothing to do with me. It's, it, it's, it's the touch of the Holy Spirit opening up your heart to how God is feeling about something. And I think Nehemiah is on that sort of prophetic line here. And he can't conceal it, and the king notices it. Well, he then seizes the moment. <laughs> what would you do? What would you do? Someone says to me, are you feeling all right, Ian? I'll tell you what I always say. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> it's just easier. I don't want to go through all that stuff of talking about what I'm feeling like, um, particularly if I've got irritated over some stupid little thing that shouldn't have got irritated about. Uh, you, know, I don't, you know, I'm fine. What's the matter? Nothing. <laughs> he doesn't give in to fear. You see, I think in this situation, 
He's been praying about this moment, hasn't he? And suddenly there is the opportunity. The king's saying, what's up, Nehemiah? And he could have said, nothing. I'm fine. He could have given in to the fear of the situation because this is a king of a massive empire and he is just the cupbearer and he is just about to ask if he can clear off and go back to Jerusalem and rebuild a wall for a city, the capital city of a country that had been an enemy of this king's empire. Not much then. Now, he could have given in to fear at this point, but he didn't. And I, You know, we've talked about waiting for God's moment. Well, that's all very well. But for goodness sake, when God opens up the moment, then seize the moment and get mobilized. Because it's one thing to keep waiting and waiting and wait. You see, God won't keep us waiting forever if we're serious about serving him and our heart is burdened with something that burdens the heart of God, then then, then he will give us the opportunity, whether it be a small situation or a big situation, and we must seize it. We mustn't give in to fear because fear is the opposite of faith. We have to step out and do it. Now then, there's another challenge for you. Is there something that you should now, at this moment, be stepping out and doing? Is there somebody who you've been praying for who's not a Christian and you know that there's a, you just know in your spirit that an opportunity is there for the taking? Is there somebody who, who there, there is a relationship problem and you've been praying and praying for the right moment to do something about it and now is that moment? Don't give in to fear, take it. Is there an area of ministry that God has been burdening you about and you know that the opportunity is just opening? Don't give in to fear. I remember Maggie's face. I'm sorry, I didn't ask you if I could humiliate you in front of everybody. (laughs) I remember Maggie's face when I first said to her about, what was it, I don't know, about three years ago, Maggie, I think you ought to consider going into the ministry. But she didn't give it to fear. And now there she is, starting out on the course. Probably giving in to fear now. <laughs> and, and, it, and it is beginning. You have to go with it. If God gives you an opportunity in an area that you're called to move into, if you don't take it, you will regret it for the rest of your life and a whole area of your life that could have been filled with fruitfulness, will be denied you. I think that's what I felt at Sunderland Christian Centre where I finally got up the courage to go and get prayer ministry and all these people falling about all over the place. I'd never seen anything like it. I thought, Lord, this is stupid. (laughs) What on earth is going on here? And I was prayed for, I was prayed for, and someone laid hands on me and said, never the same again never the same again. And I'll tell you, I haven't been the same again. And if I'd have missed that opportunity, well, I might have had a comfortable, a more, I don't know, but I, I would have regretted it for the rest of my life. If God gives you an opportunity, seize it, <laughs> seize it. Okay, don't give in to fear. 
And yes, then he steps into his anointing. Now, now the interesting thing with stepping into your anointing, I couldn't really find the sort of picture I wanted, but this came close. It's, it's sort of like if God has got something for you to do and you step into it, although it's hard work, it's not hard spiritual work because suddenly you are receiving from God power to do the thing that he wants you to do. And you flow in that anointing. If you're trying to do it unplugged, it's really hard work. (laughs) It's really hard work. Yeah. Because there's no power. Or the only power is sort of willed up from within you. You you know, I'll, I'll I'll be honest with you. Over this last month or so, I've been literally running on empty. But every time I've had to step up and do something that's in the anointing that God has given me, it's sort of like I'm a different person then. (laughs) And, And I've been able to do it. It's just strange that, you know, since Dad died, I've had this whole series of high-profile public things to do and, and a heavy program of preaching and, and leading away days for another church and that, and it's just how it's been. And every time, I've just felt buoyed along, and, and that's for two reasons. It's because you guys are praying. I know that, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart because prayer just makes an enormous difference. But it's also because I'm then stepping into the anointing of something God has called me to do and asked me to do. And so it's his strength and not mine. And that's been a great relief. Seize the moment. Seize the moment. So he does. Here we go. Verse 3. Oh dear, verse 3. And it's quarter to seven already. Okay, we'll see how we do. Verse 3. And he starts, May the king live forever. You know, I think kings... And the like, once they hear that phrase, may the king live forever, they must think, oh, now what's coming? (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's sort of a, you know, like someone coming up to you and saying, oh, you're looking really good and handsome today, Ian. And now this is what I want. (laughs) May the king live forever. And then he, he goes on and he says, why should my face not look sad? Now, this this is a cupbearer, a slave talking to the king, why shouldn't I look sad, mate? (laughs) Well, he didn't quite say that. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then we begin to see this bit about God's moment. You see, what could the king have said here? He could have said, hard luck, get a life. You're here, you're my cupbearer. Get your act together. And for goodness sake, start smiling. (laughs) Cheer up. (laughs) Cheer up. (laughs) Someone said that to me a week ago. I felt like punching them on the nose. (laughs) I didn't. I didn't. He was bigger than me. What could the king have said? You know, any number of things the king could have said. But this is God's moment. Nehemiah has stepped into his anointment. His anointment? What sort of word is that? His anointing. (laughs) 
he's, he's, he's stepped into the place that God has ordained for him. This situation is a God situation. And so of all the many things the king says, what is it that you want? <laughs> what is it that you want? This is like you or me going into number 10 Downing Street and saying to David Cameron, I've really got this issue, you know, and I'm very sad about it. And he says, okay, what, what do you want? <laughs> this is amazing. But we shouldn't be amazed because God's in it. <laughs> God's in it. Exciting. God's in it. The moment has been prepared by God. Now, there are so many illustrations, so many illustrations I could share with you in all sorts of situations where, where people have stepped into these things, but nearly all of them are pastoral situations, so I can't, because, you know, they're confidential, but from situations where, you know, there's been a, a great problem, a great, I don't know, a, a great argument or a great problem within a church and, and, and people are at loggerheads and everything and they, and they don't know how to resolve it, but they pray and they pray and they wait for God's moment and then once the moment comes, if they seize it, everything goes smoothly because it's God's timing. So many situations. You see, I'm not explaining this very well. I, I, I think sometimes in the church we try to do God's job for him and sort everything out. Say in moral situations that people find themselves, um, things are, are perhaps not quite right. And so the church steps in and says, uh, with, 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 with its big judgmental finger, and says, that needs sorting out. And it wasn't God's moment to sort that out. And so there's all sorts of angst, and there's all sorts of bitterness, and there's all sorts of trouble. Instead of people simply praying and waiting for God to work and waiting for his Holy Spirit to move people together and then letting God sort it out. That, isn't that how grown-up churches should operate? Isn't it? I, I think, you see, I think we, we, we act like... You know, I was a teacher for 15 years, and, and children, um, not any of our marvellous children, because they are all perfect in every way, but, but, but uh, <laughs> they are. A fantastic bunch, our, our, our kids. Anyway, um, where was I? Yes, uh, I was a teacher for 15 years, and, and people, you know, two children would come to me, and there'd, there'd be this situation. Uh, someone had argued with so-and-so, or someone had used so-and-so's rubber, or, you know, the sorts of things. And you as teacher there, you sort it out. You try and get them to agree, and all of that sort of thing. I was a bit surprised when I became a vicar to discover that the playground rules operate in churches as well. <laughs> There's this thing happening in here. Is there? Oh, what's well, sorted out then? <laughs> Pray about it. Be be because we should be looking to grow up in the faith and be responsible adults. And, uh, and it just seems to me that too often... We try to do God's work for him instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to move in people's lives and for them to grow to a position where God's moment is reached and things are resolved. Yes, be decisive. Yes, 
must be firm when it's God's moment, but when it isn't God's moment, for goodness sake, just shut up. (laughs) I think. You can challenge me afterwards if you don't agree. Okay. I suppose what I'm talking about is all the while that the Holy Spirit of God is preparing the ground in so many complex situations, and we shouldn't try and go ahead of him. Because we can't. We will get it wrong again and again and again. Okay. So, the moment has been prepared by God. What is it you want? What does he do? What does he do? Well, arrow prayers. You've heard of arrow prayers. This is actually a red Indian. Oh, you're not you're meant to call them red Indians anymore, aren't they? Native Americans, an Apache, um, shooting a, uh, an arrow into the sky. And we all know, don't we, about arrow prayers. I would guess everybody here uses arrow prayers. Situation comes up, Lord, please help me. A short prayer. And that's great. But I would say to you this. Nehemiah's arrow prayer is based on the prayers of days that he made previously. I think for some Christians, the only type of praying they do is arrow prayers. And that ain't good enough. (laughs) This prayer is based on, on the heart of Nehemiah that's been brought into alignment with the heart of God through prayer and fasting and, and intercession, and then he can offer, when the time comes, he offers the arrow prayer. But he does offer it. He doesn't leap straight in. He gives a 30-second pause. What is it you want? Dear God, help me. Then he's in. Then he's in. And my goodness, he is really in. You just watch him go, Right? We'll have our strong Nehemiah up again, because now he really gets moving. And this is what I mean about, yes, wait, but when you get the moment, then seize it. And he really does. Have a look at this. Um, He says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. And then the king, with the queen sitting next to him, so this is all pretty intimidating stuff for Nehemiah. He said, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? (laughs) It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Now that's interesting because as far as I can see in my reading of Nehemiah, he never goes back. (laughs) Never ever. But, But he's willing to leave that with God at this moment and just go and step out. Okay, so he gives a time. But then... He goes on, seizing the moment. Verse 7. He starts asking for stuff. If it pleases the king, and the king must be thought, thinking, oh, now, what have I started? Can I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so they will be, um, give me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? Oh, and I need a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber because I need beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple um, uh, that I will occupy. And, and I need this, and I need that, and, I, and is that all right? <laughs> is that all right, king? <laughs> oh, king of the empire, will you just give me soldiers? Will you give me um, a guard? He really seizes the moment. Incidentally, this really shows the difference between him and Ezra. Because if you look at Ezra, when Ezra is asked by the king if he needs anything for his journey back to Jerusalem, he says, no, 
the Lord will protect me. <laughs> and that was right for him to do. But it was right for Nehemiah to do this. Again, we get, we get caught up on method in the church of Christ. We sort of think if we apply this one method that's worked in that place, it will work in that place. Oh, no. The one method we need is the Holy Spirit of God. The one plan we need is God's plan. And that will differ according to situations. So, he gets all of this stuff. And the king gives it. The king gives it. Incidentally, there's another, there's another quite interesting comparison between Ezra and Nehemiah. Towards the end of Ezra, there's a situation where the people with him, the Jewish people with him, are taking wives from outside, and that was sort of prohibited. And he's very sorrowful about this, and he sits on the ground, and it says he tears his beard out. And because they see him in such mourning and repentance over their actions, so they change their minds. Same thing happens to Nehemiah. If you look, I think it's around about Nehemiah 12, can't remember. The same thing happens. People are beginning to take um, foreign wives, and then they're not meant to at this particular situation in time, as Israel is being reoccupied. What does he do? Well, you read it. He sets about them, and he tears their beards out. <laughs> he does. He starts beating you up. How dare you do that? Any beards that I can pull? Oh, yeah, Harry. No. <laughs> Visual aid. Yeah, Keith, there's one. There's a pullable beard. You know, whose method was right? <laughs> they were both right or wrong. <laughs> because it's not method. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God. That's important. Can I just add that all of this help has come through a king who does not acknowledge Yahweh? God as sovereign. He's a pagan king. So therefore, is it just possible, do you think, that God is able to work in people's hearts when they're not signed up disciples of Jesus Christ? Is it just possible that God is able to work outside of the church? Do you think so? <laughs> yes. I love this. I love it. I mean, so the church is so precious sometimes about who it will receive help from. Oh, no, they're not good enough. <laughs> and we have this sort of precious piety about, oh, it's our mission. <laughs> we don't need help from them. My goodness, how stupid is that? You see, if God had relied on the church over 2,000 years to do everything, where on earth would we be? because we're so busy having arguments with each other most of the time, we haven't got any time to think about the rest of the world. So thank goodness that God is at work in the rest of the world without us sometimes. Yeah, but remember, remember that we should know that and not fall into the trap. You see, I find out there an enormous warmth towards the Church of Christ. Yes, of course we get persecution, and yes, of course occasionally we, we get hostility, and we have to expect that. Jesus told us to expect it. But we don't have to expect it from everybody because God is at work. You know, when Jesus sent the, the, the disciples out, he said, look for the man of peace, the man or woman of peace, and go into their home and, and speak with them. In other words, there, there are all of these people who God is at work in in some way and is able to use as his plan 
comes to fruition. And so, for me, it's just a source of great encouragement. And that's, I suppose, what I mean about saying, look where God's working and get involved. Now, if you've got a friend who really is not very interested, doesn't seem very interested in the gospel, well, don't drop them as a friend. You know, be a friend, um, because friends are, are good things. But don't keep witnessing to them. <laughs> Just love them. And look for the, the, the person who is ready to hear and who is ready to receive. God is at work. God could use anyone. The story of the Bible tells us that as you go through the Old Testament and the New. People being brought into line. And the birth of Christ required King Herod to call a census. Was that his idea? I don't think so. I think God moved him. Very, very exciting. And so the forces of darkness are rattled. Um, in, in this letter, or in the, this uh, story, the forces of darkness are shown by um, verse 10, Sambalat and Tobiah. They sort of represent, I suppose, in, 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 this, uh, in this account, the, the Satan figures, if you like, those who are opposed to the work of God come what man. It says, when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And when God gets going and God's people get going, of course Satan is going to be disturbed. And of course, therefore, there will be opposition. And I was always told that if you get a little bit of opposition, then say, praise the Lord, it means you must be on the right track. (laughs) Uh, Not when we create the opposition ourselves by just being stupid. (laughs) Uh, but, but, you know, when it comes because we're doing the right thing. And so now, Nehemiah is ready. And he is heading towards Jerusalem. And it's gone seven, and I think that's where I'm going to call it a, a day for, for tonight. A day for tonight. Well, you know what I mean. Um, and then we will look next time at how he go, goes about the beginnings of this great work. Now I'm going to invite you to respond to all of that. So will you please stand? And just stand now in God's presence. Perhaps we can have a a musician or two to help us. uh... Because I've challenged in some very specific areas tonight and it may be that that challenge or some of those challenges are for people here. I've challenged you about waiting, waiting for the moment and you might be in that sort of position right now about a relationship, an error of ministry, maybe with your work, And I'd ask you to really bring that before God now because it could be that the Holy Spirit will speak to you and you might be given a little bit more clarity on, on what you've got to do next in that situation. And, and, and if that's pressing upon you very heavily, then 
Can I encourage you to go for prayer ministry in a moment? That will be at the back of the church. Get others to pray with you uh, so that we can help one another as we try and discern God's will in these areas. But it might be also for you that the time is now and you know that God is saying to you, you must do this thing now. You should do this thing now. And again, that could be an area of ministry, but it could be some relationship that needs putting and restoring. It could be that you've got a health issue and God is actually saying, well, actually, now is the time that I want you to get some prayer about that. And you've been hanging back and not wanting to. Now, remember, don't give in to fear. Prayer offered in Christian love, I don't think, ever hurt anybody. So let's just be quiet for a moment before the Lord, waiting on the Holy Spirit, and then we'll add into that the things that deeper have been crying about just before this service to see if there are any pictures or words that are actually for you tonight. And can I say that if they are, you must get prayer. But just a moment's quiet, first of all.